If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Review. Medieval people are often portrayed in popular culture as being grubby and smelly, with few manners to recommend them. However, in reality, such uncouth behaviour would certainly have been frowned upon. Speaking with Emily Briffitt, Danielle Sobolski delves into the historical handbook to pull out some top tips on social etiquette for the Middle Ages and considers why these rules and ideals were so important at the time. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Emily. It's so great to talk to you again. I'm so excited. <laughs> so we are dipping into the medieval rulebook today to talk all about medieval manners. Now, I think there's a tendency today to think of the medieval period as uncouth and uncivilized. How true is this perception? I think that there is a point at which they are not the same as us, right? So we might make those judgments like they're uncouth, they're uncivilized. But when you look at them in the context of their culture, and when you look at some of the rules they have for how to be well-mannered, then you see that they're very similar to the ones that we have today. So I think it's always something that you should be suspicious of when people start to say this time period was backwards or uncouth or something like that. I think you should always look into it when people say that. And usually you'll find that people are so much more similar to today than we ever expect. So how important were manners in the medieval period? Was it something like today where they're prized? Yes, absolutely. And I would say that in some ways they might be even more important. And that's because of the social structures of the day, right? So you have the nobility, the aristocracy, those people who are really prizing themselves on manners and making sure they can dance and read poetry and eat politely at the table. And if you want to join them and you're in the lower ranks of society, 
you can get yourself educated, but no one is going to want to sit with you at the banquet or want to be seen with you if you don't have any manners. And so if you want to move up in the world and you want to have a patron, you need to have good manners. So I would say it's almost more important than it is today. Although today, I mean, we still expect people to have good manners, I think. So it was perhaps something that could make you stand out from the crowd, but in a good way. Yes, yes, absolutely. It was a way to show that you were sophisticated, that you were educated, that you were ready to hang out with the most important and most sophisticated people around. Who decided what defined good manners? That's a really good question. I think a lot of the things around manners are things about cleanliness. So if you look at the first part of my book, which talks about table manners, a lot of that is just not being disgusting, right? Like don't blow your nose at the table. Like don't leave an oil slick on top of the wine glass because you're sharing it with someone else. That kind of stuff I think is hygienic. And I think that is a real like human tendency. Nobody wants to be disgusting at the table. And I think we could see this across the world, across cultures, across time. So I think that's kind of the baseline. And then above that, you have people who are worried about the more fine details. And those, I think you'd find that in the upper classes, right? The people who have more time to spend thinking about manners because they're not plowing the fields. So I think it's kind of a top-down thing. But of course, people, I always want to make sure that we don't imagine that peasants had no manners, for example. I think you would go into a peasant household and imagine that they are just as strict about making sure your elbows are not on the table. But I think when it comes to like, manners in terms of fashions and things like that. Like, this is how we hold our spoon. I think that's going to be coming from the top down in the Middle Ages. So were there particular rules that came in and out of fashion, as you say? I think that when it comes to things like fashion, it would be working around the material objects that people could afford, right? So when it comes to the salt cellar, for example, where you place the salt cellar is something that is going to be affected by the fact that you have a really nice salt cellar instead of just, you know, a communal dish that everyone's using around a peasant table. So did things come in in and out of fashion? In part, I think because of how the material objects that you're allowed to afford or able to afford. But one thing that did come into fashion very late and not widespread everywhere was forks. So that's definitely a fashionable thing and not everyone was on board with forks. That's something that didn't really catch on until much later. Do you think there's maybe rules that people in the early Middle Ages might have found uncouth about their descendants or perhaps vice versa? I think one of the things that they would probably call us out for is people using their phones at the table. (laughs) I think that Because eating is such a communal activity, it's such a social activity, it would be so rude to not be looking your dining partner in the eye or to be like touching a phone and then touching your food. So I think that when you look forward to our time from the Middle Ages, I think that ideas around not paying attention to what you're doing, not enjoying your food or looking at your phone, not enjoying your partner, I think those would be the things they'd probably call us out for. So we've spoken so much about the dinner table. And I think that's when we might think of manners. It's that table manners. It's classic. So when it comes to eating, what were the biggest do's and don'ts? Well, again, it's everything to do with keeping that communal plate clean. So most people are sharing, if we're talking a banquet, for example, most people are sharing a plate and a cup with one other person. So you want to Make sure that that stays clean. Use your napkin. Don't use the tablecloth. People actually had napkins and tablecloths at a banquet, which is, I think, something that maybe we don't imagine they did at the Middle Ages. But yeah, 
napkins and tablecloths. So things like don't wipe your face on the tablecloth or your sleeve. Make sure that you wipe your face before you take that sip of wine because you don't want people to leave that oil slick. But then there's other things that make it a bit more refined. So you want to keep your elbows off the table. You want to make sure that you're taking small enough bites that you're not speaking with your mouth full. And you are giving the best portions to your partner who's at the table. So there are things that you don't want to do. And those are all the hygienic things we were talking about a second ago. The things you do want to do are to make that extra step where you're offering the best things to the person who's with you. You're making sure that they have everything they need, that they're comfortable. And so there's a lot that has to do with the very personal nature of having a shared plate and cup that's going to make it so that elevating your manners is about being pro-social and that you're being polite and making sure that the other person is well taken care of. Was the dinner table an important place to show off your manners and your good standards? I would think so because that's where everyone is getting together. And if you are a VIP, you are sitting at the top table. So if you watch a Harry Potter movie or if you go to a wedding, you'll still see a top table where people are almost performing, but we still put people at the front at a top table like that where they're facing everybody else. So if you're that person, if you're invited to sit at the top table, you are especially going to have to make sure that your manners are very, very clean and good and impressive because everybody down the hall can see you. So yeah, I think it's especially important if you're a VIP to make sure that your manners are on point. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So I'm guessing it wasn't just at the table that you were expected to be courteous, but I'm guessing also about greeting and meeting guests or vice versa, greeting and meeting your host. Were there rituals surrounding that? Yes. So when you are visiting someone, you'd be coming into their house. And if it's going to be for food, the first thing they would do would be to offer you water to wash your hands in. And that makes a lot of sense because the outside world is kind of dusty and stuff. If you're riding a horse or you're walking around a dirt road, Things are going to be a little bit dusty or muddy, perhaps. And so you'll be offered water to wash with at first. And then when you come in to someone's house, it might be really well decorated just for you. It might have garlands up or tapestries or something like that. And so it's very polite to remark on that and be like, how beautiful your house looks. You've been to the florist, I see, and given, you know, the table and elevated look with this vase full of flowers. So that kind of stuff, that greeting... It is going to be polite. And there are things that we find in medieval manor books, for example, saying, don't show up to your host house on horseback. Make sure you get down from your horse before you go into their house. Things like that that maybe we don't have to think about in the modern world, but they were on medieval people's minds too. So they had almost guidebooks or rule books telling them what they should and shouldn't be doing. So I get into things like chivalry and running a household and running a kingdom in this book, Chivalry and Courtesy, my latest book. And those things 
when we're talking about chivalry, you're looking at books that are meant for knights. But in the beginning, when I'm talking about table manners especially, one of the books that I really enjoyed working with is called The Book of the Civilized Man. And it's by someone called Daniel of Beckles. And he wrote this book for school children, for boys. And so he says things in it that are about like, don't eat too fast, don't eat too much, don't put your elbows on the table. But he also says things because it's a book for little boys, like don't make bodily function jokes at the table and make sure that you're keeping your bodily functions under control at the table. So when we're looking at manners books or when we're looking at any books that tell us kind of basics, we're looking often at instructional books for boys. That's where we can sometimes see Latin against old English and see how that's taught and how that's translated. And it's the same for manners books. So speaking about teaching children, Was that also the expectation of a parent to teach them how to be a good person? Yes, absolutely. So the parents, and this is one of the things that makes it a little bit tricky. You can look at a manners book and it'll write down things like, here's how it's blowing your nose. (laughs) But a lot of the stuff that especially parents are teaching their children in peasant households, we don't have a record of because this is going to be stuff that they learn by example. So there's a lot of leading by example when it comes to teaching children in the Middle Ages, just like today. And a lot of that comes from just showing kids sort of on-the-job training. So if you have a mother in a household, whether it's a noble household or peasant household, she's showing the children things like how to make textiles, how to run things, how to make sure that you have enough food, enough supplies. And with dads, it's kind of the same thing where they're teaching their kids how to plow the fields if they're peasants or how to start their nightly training, although children are often fostered out in the Middle Ages around between 7 and 10, depends on where we're talking and when we're talking, but they're fostered out to learn from other adults how to be the person they're supposed to be. And this is for boys and girls, but especially boys who want to become knights. Were there set roles when it came to the household? And did these differ between, say, younger members of the house and older members of the house? There are definitely set roles. Yes, for sure. And women are doing the things that we put under the umbrella of domestic chores. But this is a lot of things that involves everything from making textiles to making food to caring for the animals. So like, this is a huge range of activities. And if you're a peasant woman, you're taking care of all of that stuff yourself. You might have the children helping you with animals, for example. But there's a lot to do. And when The men are away, for example, if they're on crusade or they're at war or they're just inspecting their other land holdings if they're lords, then the woman is also taking care of all of that business as well, making sure that his side of the equation, the household equation is working. For men, they're out in the fields doing a lot of the physical work if they're peasants and if they're knights. That usually means that they're lords or landholders. So they're making sure that the lands are running smoothly, that everyone has what they need. They're hearing complaints. They're hearing cases. So it's a very gendered system in the Middle Ages, which no one will be surprised to hear. But even for children, they're kind of doing this the smaller aspects of these gendered roles from the beginning, from the time that they are more reliable to do the work, around seven or so, then they're taking on these roles for sure. Aside from the roles a family might take on, when it came to specific manners, were there different expectations of men and women? There were to a certain extent, yes. So that baseline of table manners, for example, or like being complimentary to your host, that's for everybody. But for adults, 
it's more strict when it comes to women. And again, no one is going to be surprised by this. So there are books that tell you how to comport yourself. And many of the times this is about being, you want to show that you're rational. So you are not going to laugh too loudly. You're not going to even smile too much. You're not going to talk too much. It's all about moderation and having a lot of control over your body. But there is more of that expectation with women for a few reasons. One of them being that women are meant to be or supposed to be in terms of societal expectations. They're expected to be more sinful, especially prone to gossip or lust or all of these things. So for women, they have to be under control quite a lot and not speak a lot. And so when we look at books for women, there's one that's called The Book of the Night of the Tower. For example, this man, Jeffrey de la Tour Langy, he writes a book for his daughter saying, here's how to comport yourselves. And he is very specific about don't talk too much, don't be too forward. And he's even saying like, don't turn your head too much or your eyes too much. If you need to look across the room, like turn your whole body <laughs> because if you turn your head too much, people will just think you're flighty. There are manners for men and women that differ. And it's really based on this idea that women, they don't have a lot of control over their thoughts and wants and things like that. Men are much more rational. And that's what these manners books are based on. I think this somewhat brings us on to the idea of courtship and I think when we think of the middle ages there's a lot about the medieval romances very chivalric very wooing and all that sort of thing when it came to medieval courtship what was the right way to woo (laughs) well this is was the most dangerous part to write about I have to say because when we look at chivalry and courtship These are really based on old ideas about what women and men are like. And what I mean by that is that men are supposed to be courting the women. They are supposed to be resisting. And then the men are expected to overcome that resistance. This is the expectation that's set up through courtly love literature, through troubadour poetry, through that kind of societal expectation. Because women are supposed to be so modest that they're not ready to jump into marriage or bed with anybody that there's meant to be a certain amount of resistance that men are supposed to overcome. So a man would be making gestures like he might be declaring his love overtly with words, although they say in the guidebooks, don't do that right away. He might be giving her a token that she can wear on her body. She might get a ribbon or a pin or something like that that she can wear to show that she's being courted. And then the reverse, women did give men favors to wear into tournaments, for example, or or even battles, so that they would be shown to be taken, that they're off the market, as it were, and that they are being romanced by someone. And so those things, I think, are much more positive. Are there any particularly famous success stories, or perhaps any stories where wooing has gone incorrectly, let's say? Yeah, I think that when it comes to success stories, you have couples that get together through chivalric means or through traditional means. For example, like Edward I of England and his wife, Eleanor of Castile. That's an arranged marriage, but it turned out really great for them both. Maybe not for Wales and Scotland, but it turned out well for the couple. And they had a really loving relationship that lasted for decades. So that, I would say, is a success story. On the other hand, we have Ulrich von Liechtenstein, who is the man in A Knight's Tale is named after, but He's very different, as we will see. We're not quite sure if Ulrich von Lichtenstein is a real guy writing about real experiences, because it is a very literary style, his book, which is called The Service of Ladies. But he basically stalks the woman that he's involved with 
to the point at which like he sends her his severed finger. But from the perspective of the writing, it's meant to be like, look at how far he's going to show his love for this woman. And she's just so cold and she's not into him. So I would say like reading Ulrich von Lichtenstein is a jaw-dropping experience for us now. But looking at it through this cultural lens, it's meant to be very romantic. It's extreme, which is why we kind of look at it and go, is this real? We don't know. But yeah, he won all these tournaments for her and just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. Even in the end, she never relented. I guess you looking back at this, you can really see how much society has changed in its ideals. And this is work that we have to do consciously, right? Because I think for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, we've been working with this idea that men are supposed to pursue and women are supposed to resist. And this is something that we are really working against really in the last 20, 50 years. So it's something that will appear in old romantic comedies, for example. And it's something that is not gone from our society, but it's something that I think that we're a lot more conscious of and the ways in which it is a very troubling thing that is our legacy from the Middle Ages and beyond. When courtship turned to marriage, what was the medieval ideal? So the medieval ideal is something right out of a 1950s housewife's book. You're meant to make this paradise of relaxation for your husband. You're meant to bring him his slippers right in front of the fire. And so like, this is the ideal. And it's written by male writers. And <laughs> it's based on biblical teachings where men are the heads of the household and women are submissive to them. So we know that this is the setup. This is what it's supposed to be like. But we also know that in practice, in real life, you have to have a partnership. And marriage is made up of those everyday moments, like minute to minute, people thinking, people working through problems. And we do know from a few other sources, especially one called a poem called How the Good Man Taught His Son, they're talking about you need to have a partnership with your wife. And this specifically says in this poem that even though she is your servant, she is also your equal. She's your fellow. So you need to work with her. And even though men had a legal right to punish their wives to a certain extent, this rule of thumb thing is a myth, but they were allowed to discipline their wives physically if they felt the need, even though that was the standard and the law, men realized and women realized that things would go a lot better if you did not take that road. And fortunately, we know that women had their families that they could rely upon. And also we know that sometimes neighbors intervened. So if things were getting really rough, sometimes neighbors would intervene because if you lived in a town, for example, everyone could hear what's going on in your house. So, you know, even though things could go badly, we know that the community was also on top of it. They were helping out. So the ideal marriage, if we look at the ideal marriage, was supposed to be one where a wife is submissive and making a paradise for her husband. But in the real world, we know that there were loving couples, there were dysfunctional couples, and that anytime you have people who are working together, living together all the time, it's going to be about conversation and about collaboration and all that stuff. So this is one of the places where you look at the sources and you have to read between the lines, right? What is the actual human story behind the ideal, which is not our ideal by a long way? Another idea we so often hear about when it comes to the Middle Ages is this idea of chivalric knightliness. Mm -hmm. What were the rules surrounding knights and hopeful knights? That's a really good question because when people talk in the media, they talk about a code of chivalry and it's almost always like a code of chivalry in quotation marks. This is what it's called. 
But it turns out, if you actually look into the Middle Ages, that there is no one code of chivalry. There are guidelines, as it were, lots of different books that different knights have written about chivalry. And they do have a lot of the same kind of broad strokes, and that is that you should be faithful. So it's really tied to Christianity in medieval Europe. That faith is a big part of it. And so when you line up the other values, they also line up along Christian ideals, which are faith, hope, and charity, right? These are all very important parts of knighthood. And then knights were also meant to take care of people who could not take care of themselves. So they really specify in a few of the chivalric codes that we have that you should especially take care of widows and orphans because they cannot take care of themselves. And you're supposed to take care of women because legally they can't and physically they're weak and mentally they're weak. So taking care of people who can't do it for themselves. But those Christian ideals that we still hold on to for the faithful, especially that faith, hope, and charity, generosity, compassion, and mercy, these are all things that are part of knighthood. Even though if you watch a movie, there are knights that are chopping heads off everywhere. Mercy, for example, is a core part of knighthood. This was my going to be my question for you. I think you hear of knights as either heroic protectors or aggressive warriors. Where did that ideal sit and what actually was the real reality? Yeah, they are supposed to be both. And what makes it really interesting and actually what drew me to the Middle Ages was a lot of Arthurian stories. And in stories of Arthur's knights, they are often not living up to this ideal where they're supposed to be doing this thing or they've made conflicting oaths and then they have to decide which one is more important to keep. So even though you're supposed to be taking care of people who are lesser than yourselves, we know that in war, for example, the knights are not doing that, right? They're not necessarily taking care of the peasants. For example, there's the whole strategy in the Hundred Years' War where the English are performing chevauchées, which are basically destroying everything in their path in order to demoralize the French and to win the war. So even though people have taken their knightly oaths, which are to uphold faith and things like that, they are not actually performing that. So it's one of these things where the ideal doesn't always work. And so when you have things like Arthurian literature, it's interesting to see how they're working this out. How do I be a knight, but also like a chivalric knight, but also a soldier when I'm called to be a soldier? How do I do this? And so I think that this whole culture of chivalry is a way of trying to work through these ideas and these issues. Could a knight be disgraced if he didn't uphold these values? I don't think he could be stripped of knighthood or anything like that, but he would definitely be shunned. So if you look at early tournaments, for example, most early tournaments were not about jousting. They were about something called the melee, which is a giant battle where everyone's just clashing against each other. And it's very dangerous, which is why tournaments became more about jousting as time went on and then jousting got safer. But in the melee, for example, you're capturing people and you're putting them in a pen, basically, and you're saying, like, stay there until you're ransomed. But because they're not really being guarded, everyone's out and, and fighting in this mock battle, sometimes they would leave or they wouldn't pay their debts or things like that. And so in the biography of William Marshall, there's a point at which he goes to an overlord and says, like, this guy owes me his horse because I captured him and he didn't give me his horse. And the Lord's like, wait a second, that is so unchivalric. Give him his horse right now. <laughs> so, like, they could be disgraced, but it would mean, like, you just don't get to hang out with the cool knights for a bit until you basically say you're sorry or make up for it. Now, if a knight has performed an atrocity, for example, in war, 
he would be making that up in a public way often by founding a monastery or a church or a school or something like that to show remorse. But did, did that stop them from committing the atrocity in the first place? No. So chivalry is a really tricky, slippery business, and it does have a very ugly side as well. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the monarchy and whether they followed the rules. Were kings and queens allowed to get away with a few more faux pas or a few less than their counterparts? Well, I would say probably a few more. Because there's latitudes. So the tricky thing is about monarchs in opposition to the way that people are elected today is that once you're a monarch, it means you've been anointed. It means you've been blessed by God. And even though you are following the lineage of kings so that if you are born from a king, then you're going to be one eventually if you're the sole heir and things go well. But you're not really a king until you are anointed. So once you have this blessing from God, it's really hard for people to say, oh, no, you can't be king anymore. So I think that they could get away with a few more things, but they couldn't get away with just anything, as we know, because there are a few kings in English history, for example, that got deposed because they were terrible kings. So you could push the boundary. And Richard II, especially as a young man, was deciding that he was going to just do whatever he wanted because he had divine right. And well, he only had divine right to a certain point because <laughs> then he got deposed. So, yeah, I think that in some ways, kings knew that they had divine right and they really made it part of their identity. And so Richard II is a good case, I think. And Shakespeare really, really gets at that beautifully where you have this identity that is part divine. Why can't I just do what I want? But in society, you're not going to be able to get away with it for too long because there has to be some justice at some point. Do we know if there's any set rules that were intended solely for the monarchs? We know that there were a lot of books that were written called Mirrors for Princes, and these books relied on ancient texts and contemporary texts, and so they would be a compilation of things that tell you how to be a good king. And, I mean, Machiavelli's The Prince tells you how to be a prince, which is a little bit different from kingship. This is about Italian city-states, for example. But that kind of book is an advice book for people who are going to rule, and here's how you should rule. And Machiavelli's is especially insidious in some ways because he tells you to be more ruthless. Usually, mirrors for princes will tell you to follow a biblical example, right? So here's how King David did right, and here's how he did wrong, and here's how you should do it, and really follow the Ten Commandments and make sure that you are just and merciful and all of those ideals we were just talking about in terms of chivalry. So people did write mirrors for princes. Christine de Pisan was one who wrote a mirror for princes. And those books were meant to guide kings. And hopefully they're reading them when they're young and they're taking these little bits of advice to heart. So there were guidelines for them. But again, when you're dealing with royalty, you can only make suggestions. <laughs> so these are more suggestions than rules. Now, speaking about monarchy, but also more generally, do we get a sense that manners, rules, guidelines varied regionally, whether in the country itself or across countries? This is a tricky question because it really depends on what kind of sources we have. Like if we're talking about county to county, for example, in a place like England, it's very hard to tell what the differences would be. I think that it's probably going to be pretty universal. And the reason that I'm saying this is that the books that people are using, for example, as mirrors for princes 
they're all based on the same texts, right? So usually they're based on the same text. You might have some slight cultural differences. People often say there is a difference between, like, for example, culture in France and Germany. And of course, different kingdoms have different small cultural variations. But when we're talking about the broad strokes, those are based on the same text, right? The same text by Aristotle and Plato and then the Bible and all the church fathers. So when everyone is basing their ideals on the same text, you're going to have more similarity than difference. That was Danielle Sobolski, historian, author, and host of the Medieval Podcast. Her latest book, Chivalry and Courtesy, is out now, published by Abbeville Press. If you enjoyed hearing from Danielle, be sure to check out our other recent podcast episode with her as she walked us through a day in the life of a medieval monk. You can find that now at historyextra.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Greenhard. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.